the airwaves Here is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves, our 30 minutes or so where we catch up with the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And this week, we have something very special. In the late 90s, I sat down for a couple of hours with this week's guest and was given an Australian radio and music history lesson by the master himself, Stan Rove. So now let's just rewind part of that tape. And anytime you're ready, Stanley. I really don't believe we can start without a jingle. A jingle, let me have a look at jingle. Yes, indeed. Must start it all with the jinglers, Stan. Let's, let's try it again, Stan. Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks very much, Paul. It's it's uh, a three-year-old jingle. We kind of heard it in the past, but my my career really started back in uh, in 1953 at 3XY when um, when Frank String took over uh, 3XY from uh, his father. And I remember uh, sort of starting there as a I don't know, a sort of fill-in for a man called Jim Ross who was doing afternoon and. Uh, and uh, promoted really very, very quickly to, to nighttime broadcasting uh, at a very early age in life. And no one will ever un- understand it, and, and I don't know. And I, I look back at that time and I think, oh, well, okay, let us sleep. You know, the first couple of years were fine. But it was from, uh, I suppose, really about, about 1955 when I joined 3K, said that uh, the Stan Rafe really became Stan the Man, and we went from there. But uh, my interest, interest really in rock and roll was caused by... Uh, a phenomenon in um, in America and Nashville around about that time, and a friend of mine was over there working for a local station in Memphis, and he used to send me records by um, uh, by Elvis, uh, by Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison, things like Ubi Doobie, that's all right, Mama, and all that very early Elvis stuff, and also Carl Perkins, and uh, I was sort of into all of that. But when I worked at 3X5, 53 to around about 54, before I went to 3KZ in 55, but uh, the fact is that... Uh, in my earlier days, was spent with um, a marvellous man, a lovely man. He's still uh, a fine father, lovely husband to a lovely lady, two great talented kids, Bert Newton. Ah, I think yes. you all know him. Yes. 
And uh, would you believe Bert and I had to work around about 12 midnight at three, it's one of those days, and it wasn't really hard to sort of get to know each other. I think there might have been two or three years between us. And um, Bert and I used to walk home at night, around about midnight, uh, because he lived in North Fitzroy and I lived in Carlton. And uh, we'd talk about, our, talk about our futures, our careers, what we'd like to do, what we wouldn't like to do on the whole lot. But it just also happened that uh, Graham Kennedy, having... I think if anyone possibly can recall the days that Nicky and Graham were on the air at Trigger's Head. Between 9 and 12 in the morning, Nicky had, uh, Nicky had died, had a heart attack. Fitzroy, football supporter, and uh, apparently died during a, a game listening to it at home. He was to do the first IMT, Nicky. He'd signed up for TV, 56, and my golly, that's around about 1954. So uh, Nicky really had his plans well and truly laid, but... Uh, it was Graham, really, that ended up doing that show. I suppose that, that, that was the start of IMT. But let's get back to uh, to Bert. Uh, Bert was um, Bert and I. Oh, we just get together, we talk, and all sorts of things. And occasionally we might meet Graham Kennedy because Graham was after he uh, was on between um, I think seven o'clock and midnight at three years old, and three explain the Princess Theatre building, and three years out at the top in the Burke Street, were sort of round the corner from each other, and. Um, Sometimes, occasionally, three of us would meet for a cup of coffee at uh, a little place in, at the top end of Collins Street called Prompt Corner, run by a very well-known actress, and I think her best work was done in Prisoner on Channel, on Channel 7. Before that, I think she made many appearances in, uh, in 96 for Channel 10. That was Bunny Brooks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Bunny had, Bunny had a coffee lounge called uh, Prompt, Prompt Corner, so occasionally, not all the time. We, we, we meet round there. There's about. It was the only coffee lounge really open right about that time in Melbourne at that time of night, like right about midnight. Mm. Where, where else could you go? But the fact is, we would, and, and Graham would talk to you. But he went home to his aunties, and, uh, and Bert and I would walk all the way home to um, to North Fitzroy and Carlton. And I suppose that was the, the first part of it. First part of me. But on the other hand, I had this friend sending me some records and. As I said earlier, you know, Elvis and Jerry Lee and Robes and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash. And so I was well aware of what was happening in America in the way of, of what was to become rock and roll. That was rock and belief. And, uh, and I suppose of all the records I had to play of Elvis's that uh, I received from overseas, all on 78, all on Sun Records, Sam Phillips, it was Buddy Holly, of course. We can't be see about Buddy Holly. And um, I guess... I guess of all those records I heard, I got heaps of Sun Records sent to me from overseas, and I was playing all the Sun Records stuff very, very late at night at 3XY in 1954, because the last hour between 11 and midnight was, uh, was really up to me. I mean, they were only worried about going till around about 10 o'clock, because it was primetime radio in those days. No TV, so everyone tuned in at night. But when I was a kid, oh, I wanted to be part of radio, so I suppose I used to grab Mum's pots down under the big clothes, around about you know, mm. uh, 6.30 at night, and, 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 and I just wanted to be a 3KZ. That was my station, because Norman Banks was my idol. A rock and roll really hadn't affected me in a great, in a great way, and it, it wasn't to do so until really around about 1957, I suppose, uh, more or less. But by the same token, yep, yep, as I go back, as a kid, Mum used to say, you know, I wish you wouldn't take those damned pots off the stand and and, and practice radio stations. You, you'll never be in radio. You haven't got the background for it. I used to say, Mum, you're wrong. And I used to say to Dad, too, you're wrong, too, Dad. Because Dad wanted me to play sport, football, cricket. 
He was a league footballer. Uh, he played for the Bombers and also St Kilda. I later became captain coach of Brighton and the association. So, you know, his two sons, one wanted to be uh, follow his mother on stage or radio or be in show business, and the other one said, yeah, yeah, I want to be a footballer. And he was too good, Carlton. <laughs> that was my brother. But, I mean, they're all the early years. And, and really, it, it started happening, and I was very aware of Rock and Willie, and I knew that there was something in that music that the Doris Day and Perry came on, other people just didn't have. <laughs> There's some vitality. There was mm. life. Life in it, and uh, and I, I didn't realise until around about 1955 when Kevin O'Gorman rang me up and said, "Would you like to audition for 3K Zone?" And um, it hadn't really struck me that I'd leave 3X by that early after being two years there only and going from afternoon to nighttime radio in a very short period of time. And um, it was KZ, in fact, there that uh, did break uh, top 40 radio into Australia. Well, it wasn't really top 40 in those days because. It, there was only one top 40 chart, and that was started really in 1956, and TUE did that uh, in Sydney. It was only in 1960 that uh, 3UZ had a top 40 chart here in Melbourne, and they only found one record bar, that was the, uh, the Coles 200 record bar on Burke Street. So they got their, their top 40 from Coles, so whatever was you know sticking up over the record bar at Coles, that was 3UZ's top 40 for the week, so... Uh, <laughs> So it was, I believe, I believe by the time I left uh, 3XY around about 1971, uh, because a friend enticed me over to 3XY when uh, he took over the, the programming. Um, I, I think in all the time I spent there, I went to 65 at 3KZ, then up to 1971 to 3UZ. But on the other hand, uh, they surveyed seven record bars with the top 40 and, you know, to me, that was, that was wrong. I was never really, you might talk, Paul, about Top 40 Radio, and, uh, all right, three years ago, we're into it. They were into it around about 1960. Um, Bob Rogers, John Laws, Tony Withers, people like that in Sydney were into it too, but uh, the two we had the first Top 40 chart in Australia, and they followed that fairly closely. I mean, they, they, they made Top 40 what it was, um, in TUE, but that really wasn't for me because I had different ideas about rock and roll and, and, and my ideas did not match the ideas of people like TUE and other laws and the Rogers and, and the Withers and, and, and people like that. You see, I believe rock and roll just had just so much more to offer. And I think maybe I was spoiled because having all these, all these sun records sent to me before rock and roll really broke, that I knew there was something better and bigger than, than rockabilly and something bigger and far better than Perry Cameron. And Vaughan Monroe and Doris Day and all those, and Joe Stafford and people like that. So I, I guess I always had a feeling that there was something bubbly and something I could never put my finger on until, until I went to 3KZ, mm -hmm. around about 1955. And I auditioned there and Kevin O'Gorman said, well, we have a man leaving for Sydney. His, his, his girlfriend has gone to, to, uh, to Sydney to, to be in the chorus line at the Tivoli Theatre. He went up there on holidays, and uh, he decided to stay there. So I dare say, you know, love, love will always win. <laughs> but he'd also provide a standby for chance to, to be on the afternoon program at, uh, at 3KZ. But by the same token, Kevin O'Gorman said to me, uh, it's a three-month trial, so you either stay at 3XY where you have uh, the solidarity and, and permanent job, or you come to us for three months on a trial basis, and if we don't like you, we turf you at the front door. So... I mean, you take those chances. For sure. The listening audience, I suppose, in those days, when that transition was made in radio from uh, uh, the more Doris Day-type style, as you talked about there, to the rockabilly on to rock and roll, how many people actually embraced that particular style early on? Was it a winner first up? Um, it's very hard to say. Paul, oh, 
it, it, it's this 54 to 55 thing that, that, that sort of worries me about, uh, not so much about Olivers, and that's all I'd murmur, the fact that he's stuck out on some records to me, like, you know, a dog's hind leg. The fact is that, that there was this rock around the clock record which no one really knew what to do with, but because it was so different. But it wasn't really until one year later that, that the Blackboard Jungle came out and they used that really as a theme that the kids really started to get up and jive. And, and a lot of people were saying, uh, you know, what's happening? It was at the Metro Theatre, by the way, in Burke Street, too. And, and they were doing it there as well. Um, the kids just went berserk over rock around the clock. So, I suppose, I, I don't know. You either say Rock and Roll started with, uh, with all of us in Heartbreak Hotel, or with all of us and uh, That's All Right Mama and Mystery Train and all that stuff on Sun Records around about 54, or are you going to turn around and say Rock and Roll started with Bill Haley and Rock Around the Clock? I mean, take your choice. I don't care which one mm. you like to play, but to me, I, I think Rock and Roll started really with the Rockabilly record. To me, it, it was really not Bill Haley and Rock Around the Clock and Rock and Roll, it was just Rockabilly, but to me, it was the most outstanding record I think that I had played in my first three or four years in broadcasting. So I think if I had to sort of pick one record as the starting point of my rock and roll career, probably 54 plus 55. <laughs> and that's all right, Rubber by Elvis was really the record, to be very honest with you, that, that really got me into it, my teeth and all. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do it, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, Mama. Any way do. Well, Mama, she done told me. Papa done told me too. Son, that guy you fooling with, she ain't no good for you, but that's all right. That's all right. Pilot of the airwaves today is the great Stan Rofe, and I did ask Stan the inevitable 60s question, the Beatles or the Stones? I was never really a Beatles fan, but anyone that's listening right now that has never heard a Beatles record then, I mean, has never heard rock and roll, has never heard a group, never heard anyone sing. Um, so yeah, let, let, let me say, John Lennon was the outstanding Beatle, 
Uh, Paul McCartney, the softer Beatles, as for the rest, Raffle them, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, the George Harrison, Ringo Sars, and the rest of me. To me, personally speaking, I mean, a lot of other people might disagree, but I don't believe they had very much talent. I think Lennon McCartney were it, and they will go down and see the great songwriters of the of the 20th century, like of contemporary music. Uh, they have to be remembered that way. But uh, to me, uh, the Rolling Stones, they were the group that I loved because they were raw, they were dirty. They they meant they they were sort of grungy and spongy and and, and, and raw and rough and tough. And to me, I thought. I love them, I love them. They're playing all those marvellous blues records that I have at home. Mm. And uh, my introduction to the Rolling Stones came to Andrew Lou Goldham and Alan Freeman at the BBC in London. So I went to Sydney to see the Rolling Stones and meet them for the first time when they came to Australia in March. No, no, it wasn't. It was um, one month earlier in 1965. I really, really was uh, sort of a Beatles fan but I, I never really became a true Beatles fan until Rubber Soul came out and Sergeant Peppers and all of a sudden the, the table, tables turn and the tide turn mm-hmm. for Stan the Man and the Beatles. But I never really got to them until that time. But in the meantime, the Rolling Stones, to me, were just the supreme group. And, and funny how, and in a sense, a sixth sense that we all have, we seem to sense these things, the Rolling Stones, to me, were going to be the group of all time. And... and now, as we're in the 90s, hmm. and they're still recording, my God, there's a new CD coming out, a new world tour on its way. And, and I, I, maybe Stan the Man was right in 1965. Could I say that? Hmm. Maybe if I have to have faith and belief in my own ability and my own ears, to me, the Rolling Stones were the group that was going to last. The Beatles never were. Have you opened up the Herald Sun and the hit pages or the Age and the Green Guide and things like that and seen, seen photos of uh, today's young rock and roll bands and uh, Australian or overseas They've all got that Rolling Stones look, you know. Mm. The look the Rolling Stones had, that, that awful grungy look. I'm going to call it grunge because that's what they really were at the time, you know. They, did, they, they never do it. And even kids today <laughs> can't really understand what grunge is all about. Mm. Uh, or heavy metal as far as it goes. And the fact is that uh, the Rolling Stones were red and they just betrayed. They had this image and, and, and it was just something. It was rough and it was raw. And, and of course, they were more... Uh, the girls really weren't into what the Rolling Stones were about, but the boys were because, to see, to them, uh, the guys always loved their heavy rock and roll. That's why they loved Little Richard and Chuck Berry and people like that. But any, anyone less than those people, that, you know, in the early days of rock and roll, the guys were never really into. And, uh, mm. and when the Rolling Stones came along, well, of course, like for every Rolling Stones fan, there'd be you know, three guys and one girl, I suppose. You know, mm. it, it was sort of that. And, and maybe it's sort of... a. But this animal smell that the, uh, the Rolling Stones kept left behind, but the, 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 their per, very first trip to Australia was uh, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, and uh, the crowd scenes at the motel, and the fact that uh, the Jagger and uh, oh, I mean, you had to look at Jagger, Richards, and and Brian Jones before he passed mm-hmm. away. Uh, as for Charlie Watson, Bill Wyman. Um, Ah, yeah, nice guys, into art and all that sort of stuff. But they, they were sort of the, the sort of ancillary members. See, the Rolling Stones had to be the alternative, didn't mm. they, really? Mm. I mean, you've got bad on one side and good on the other side. And, and all the mums and dads wanted the kids to be part of the Beatles. And, and they were. But then again, there was Stan Rove, who was uh, uh, the rock and roll disc jockey that, you know, everyone wanted to get off the air and out of the way in a hurry, but would not go away. Uh, got behind the Rolling Stones. They became, I became a very close personal friend of Mick Jagger, and I still am today, and a very close personal friend of, of Brian Jones uh, before Mick Jagger's acting, which is very unusual because 
Because Brian Jones formed the Rolling Stones in the first place, but Mick, Mick Jagger just just took over the whole the whole lot and uh, and sort of sick Brian later, and then Brian died a very unusual and, and, and extremely oh, uh, but uh, look, I, I could say a lot about his death, but mm. I would rather not because mm. because maybe I could say too much, but. Let me just say that uh, he was—he had too much to drink, or maybe maybe he was stoned and drowned in, in a swimming pool. But the fact is, Jagger sacked him. But, uh, but but to me, he was just as essential to that group as, as was Jagger and Richards. Brian and I got along well, very well together. Uh, Mick Jagger did too, and and Keith Richards, Keith Richards, uh, great guitarist, just sort of carried on. But mm. uh, Keith, to me, was always the long compass mentis member of the, of the Rolling Stones, in so much as that uh, you know when Mick said it was good and Brian said it was good, Keith said it was good too. But as for Charlie and 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 and, and Watsy and the others, I mean, <laughs> they did their own things. They went it off with uh, some of the Melbourne art freaks. Mm. And, they had a look around at the galleries and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> they sort of into art and, and, and antiques and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, as for, but, but when they were on stage together, it was just absolutely magic. Moving into the 60s, the world was becoming restless and so was Stan. This is around about the point where uh, 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 my manager, uh, I changed radio stations. I'd gone from, uh, I got from 3KZ to 3UZ because 3KZ had finished with rock and roll and I got a new manager and they said, no more rock and roll. And I said, okay, no more Stan the Man. The following day I started working 3UZ. And I was doing a morning program, uh, doing some comedy relief and stuff with um, a Sydney comedian, Joe Martin, then um, early afternoon stuff with uh, some of the teeny bobbers, then late night from 10 to 1 a.m. with the more serious side of rock and roll. Because to me, I had to explain that to use that rock and roll was becoming serious. But I mean, they weren't all the, awfully happy about it because they were basically a top 40 radio station. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this man, Stan, the man, Rove, should come along and, and turn around and say, I'm not going to play all that rubbish, you know. I, I, I don't like it very much, you know. And all of a sudden, um, you know, Lewis Bennett had to call me down. He was a general manager, and he said, Stan, you know, I, I don't know, what what are we going to do with you? He said, everyone else playing all the hits everyone wants to hear, and all of a sudden, you want to play... He said, I don't know what you're playing. He said, he said I listen. He said, I can't understand it. What are you doing? I said, I said, look, look Mr. Bennett, I said, there is a war raging out there. I said, it's called Vietnam. I said... And all of a sudden, I said, Australian kids, I read the news, they're going to be drafted to go there very shortly. When they turn 20, their marbles are going to come up. Some are going to miss out, some are going to... I said, it's not very nice. I said, and I said, I've been talking to people like Molly and everybody else. I said, we all agree, all of us. He said, it's, he said you may agree. He said, I don't. He said, you may be doing uptight, he said. And, of course, by this time, Melbourne had had all the TV shows too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, 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 let me back fact around about 1960 in the two years we banned all those Sydney records. I mean, after that, we had commotion, the go show into uptight. And uh, really, by around about 67, uh, our city was finished. Mm-hmm. It was gone, gone, just completely gone. Mm-hmm. They had nothing, absolutely nothing. All the groups that uh, had to be the Holy's National Battle of the Sounds, the whole thing. But we're here for, we're here for Holy's, all the rest of it. Now we had Russell Morris and Normie Rowe and all these people come along, but, uh, and, and then. I mean, I could mention dozens of, of bands, Twilights in the Groove and mm. the Group. Uh, they were all here, and many of them came from Adelaide, many of them came from New South Wales and from Queensland, but it was always down here to Melbourne that mm. they came because we had developed the... the we had become the centre of, of rock and roll here in Australia, but all of a sudden we were we were faced with not just rock and roll in Australia, rock and roll, we were faced with a problem, 
And all of a sudden, there's this big march coming up the Flower Power, San Francisco. Wear some flowers in your head. The small places get high, man, and Ichiku, Ichiku Park mm-hmm. and the birds. You know, let's get eight miles high. And Scotty McKenzie. And, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, all this sorts of stuff. And and it was coming in, and the feeling was getting stronger. And we had this march up in Burke Street, the, you know, the anti-Vietnam thing, and. My radio station said to me, if you march today, don't come in tonight because your job won't be there. So I marched and they were all standing up in front as I marched towards Parliament House. And my hair was down round about my shoulders at that time. And they, they all looked at me and, and I saw the managing director, Oliver, Oliver J. Nelsons, and the three of their team there. And I thought, oh, damn them, stuff them. And I just threw kisses to them and, and you know, out of my hand. And uh, waved. I went back to work that night and no one said, One minute Vietnam editorial every night at midnight. Um, and I was also Stan the Man, the Marlboro Man, too, when um, <laughs> you, could, you could advertise cigarettes on radio. And, uh, and I was also did the Adorna, why not? I never know why, why the man that ran Adorna ever chose Stan, Stan the Man at midnight at 1 a.m. in the morning. But I guess I suppose he had a reason for it. Uh, in the middle of a of Vietnam War, you know, where you're playing Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and the birds and the small places. You're into acid rock and dope and drugs and all the, the ugly things that three years had never really wanted to be part of. Stan the Man was doing between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m. every night. And he was doing it very, so very well that, you know, all these kids that had to go were lined up in cars. The kids that didn't have to go were lined up in cars. I'd come out at 1.30 in the morning after putting all my records away and Top in the Berg Street was lying with cars with, with boys, you know, in their twenty, you know, who someone would come and say, you know, we love you, man, we love you for what you're doing. We really mm-hmm. do. We really back you and and unfortunately I've got to go, but my mates here missed out and we just want to shake your hand, that's all. And a couple of cars early in the week, but by Thursday and Friday night we blocked Berg Street, the top end of Berg Street with kids in cars just just simply wanting to say Hello and thank you. Mm. That's it. That was my. That, that that's all I wanted. Yeah. My heart wasn't with three years in top forty. It was far from it. Yeah. I mean, I never gave a damn for three years in. To be honest, mm. I mean, to me, it was just simply uh, once again the use of airtime mm-hmm. to promote and play the Australian talent I believe needed it, and also to get my message across about uh, the Vietnam War, the fact that I was very anti and hated it and wanted the whole damn thing to finish. Moving into the 70s, the times, they were a-changing. Stereo radio was, was going to happen. Stereo radio in America, and a lot of people do not understand this, like AM radio in America, uh, right through the 60s, and, and, and had always been a leader, and, and I suppose the biggest radio station in America had to be KH Day, possibly in Los Angeles. They have been the leaders in top 40, and, and top 40 research and marketing in America. But of course, the Vietnam War changed it, can't you see that? The FM radio station started playing all the stuff the kids wanted to hear. The mm-hmm. power, drug, acid, rock, whatever you like to call it, I don't care, you know. It was a crazy mix of just about everything. We were all mad at that time. Uh, we were all very much anti-Vietnam, and that's why we all loved each other and hugged and kissed and smoked and doped and, and, and drank and, you know, did all the things that all of our parents and everybody else just simply hated. But we had... We had uniformity. We were against this dreadful, bloody war. Mm. And we had something to march for, and we had records to play that were 
that would eventually end the whole lot in 1974. Mm. And we had a real cause, and I was a rebel. I've been a rebel all my life, and, 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 and I'm not... I'm proud of that. I'm really proud that I was able to stand up, and never sign a contract, never sign an agreement, and just do as I wished. But it was in 1971 when I had to start running three... <laughs> along with very good friends of mine that I had to turn the table the other way and I had to start conforming and started to pick records that were going to make the top 40 chart. So, see, it all comes home to rest and roost in the long run. But I would say from uh, around about 1971, I'd had a very colourful career. Uh, I really had never been serious about broadcasting. My only serious side of it, the serious side of it for me, was just promoting everything I believed in. But I believed in Australian talent, and for that reason, I think I had an ARIA Award, uh, an Outstanding Achievement Award. Uh, I've, got, I've got awards like, you know, like they're just all over the place. I've got so many, I don't know what to do with them. So I gave them all away. Honestly, you know, I, I don't have one at home. Rock and Roll Awards, uh, like, like a Hall of Fame, and uh, the rest of it. All of my friends have them, and, and, and uh, Bob Phillips' uh, Radio Museum mm -hmm. has some down at Mornington, and uh, I think I gave some to the Arts Centre. Performing arts works in, in, in Sydney have some, with some in Canberra, and, and everyone else got the rest. <laughs> I've got nothing left. Well, there we go. The legendary Stan Rope on Pilots of the Airwaves. Hope you've enjoyed this special podcast. Thanks for the download, and we'll catch you again soon. <laughs>